Good morning, church. It is so good to see all of you this morning. We are excited to be together this morning and, uh, and, and excited for worship uh, in, in this place, in this house this morning. I want to take just a minute before we dismiss our children to head upstairs for, uh, for our, our kids' crew worship. And I want to share some news with you, okay? I'm also fiddling with my mic here because I, I realize, obviously, it's not on. I'm just going to keep talking loud, and they'll get it figured out. So in this morning's worship guide that you received when you came in, you'll notice that the very first announcement that we have printed refers to the Legacy Builders loan that we have been paying on for some time now. And, and actually, the announcement is wrong, and I want to fix that announcement for us this morning. And, and I'm saying this before we... Uh, before we dismiss our leaders and everybody else, because I, I just wanted everybody to hear this. This announcement says that we have about $7,500 left to pay off the Legacy Builders note. And, and actually, that number is wrong because we, we actually gave a check to the bank on Friday and paid for the loan. So it is finished. It is done. We called the bank to get the final payoff number because we knew we were close. And, uh, and we thought we had a couple of thousand dollars to go yet. And they said, you know, you owe uh, X amount. And we realized, wait a minute, we've got that right now. So Chad said, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to pay it off. That's what I want you to do. Let's take them a check today. Let's make sure that that happens. And so we did that on Friday, and, uh, and it is finished. We are officially debt-free. Now, here's what's really cool about that. Uh, in a few weeks, on July the 4th, we plan to celebrate that in the midst of all of our other celebrations for that Sunday by burning the note. Uh, and I should say, for those of you who always get a little bit nervous when we start, we're going to burn a copy of the note, okay, not the original. But we're going to celebrate together on July 4th and, and uh, make a big deal out. Because that's big news. And, and this is what that means. We started this process and this project back in, uh, officially in 2015. Really in 2014, we organized ourselves. We got together a group of people. We began to think and dream and look to the future about what it may look like to do some renovations and where our needs were. And, and we began to look toward the future a little bit, and then in 2015, we got serious about that, and at the, at the latter part of 2015, we entered into what we call the Legacy Builders Capital Stewardship Campaign, and we asked you to begin giving, and so you began giving for that in 2015, and we began work on renovations, there it is, and, uh, and, and all of that came together, and so at the, really the, the early part of 2017, we finished the actual construction and renovation work and then converted the construction note into uh, an, an actual note that, uh, that, uh, that we a mortgage if you will that we began making payments on all of that started so from 2017 to now in four years time we have paid off 1.3 million dollars and in addition to that there was another roughly I'm using a rough number here but another roughly 700,000 that we just paid cash on hand. So we've paid in the last six years, we've done about 
$2 million worth of facility renovation. And that is testament to the faithfulness of, of you, of the people in our church to give and do. And so that's a big deal that we, we, we want to acknowledge this morning and celebrate that appropriately in the days and weeks to come. All right, I've said enough about that. I'm going to dismiss our kids now, our, our children and leaders to head upstairs for kids' crew worship. They're going to make their way to the front. The kids can. This is for kids who are fourth grade and under, and they'll follow our leaders upstairs. And then in a matter of uh, time, when we're finished, parents, you'll be able to claim them. The room, by the way, if you're, if you're a guest, a newcomer with us today, the room that is just beyond the, the exit on this east side upstairs on the second level is our kids' crew worship room. That's where they'll be after church this morning. There's, there's two really easy ways to get there. The first is as soon as you head out these doors on your right, there's an elevator that'll take you up or straight in front of you as you head out the doors, you'll see a set of stairs. Either way, you'll get upstairs and they're just beyond the exit on that east side of the sanctuary, all right? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're in the second week of a series that we're calling The Armor of God because we're studying through the book of Ephesians and what Paul writes about the, uh, the armor of God essentially in Ephesians chapter 6 and and. and studying this in detail, and we're excited about this for several reasons, but most, most importantly, I suppose, because it's the Word of God and it, it has truth for us, but also because everything that we're doing this summer on Sundays lines up with this study. So if you came to Sunday school this morning at 9.15, our Sunday school lesson was, was built around this idea of truth because we're studying the belt of truth today, and, and you may have not... Uh, you, you, Certainly, you got into other texts, you got into some, some other stories and, and, and looked at that from a certain angle that may be a little bit different from what we're doing in, in the sermon this morning, but nonetheless, all of it is driven by this idea to understand the armor of God and look individually over the next several weeks at each piece of this armor of God. And so today, of course, we focus on truth, the belt of truth. And so let's read together Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. And then we'll dive in. Paul writes, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And I'll stop there because that's going to be what we study today. The belt of truth. Stand therefore. You remember last week he told us three different times in three different ways in the first four verses. 10, 11, 12, 13. That we were to stand or stand firm or withstand. And now here it is again, this admonition, this instruction that we should stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So the first piece of this armor that we're studying together is the belt of truth. You know, I don't suppose there's anything cuter than a belt to walk, right? There are not too many things that I can think of that, that would top on the cuteness scale, the, 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 the sight of a little one who's got the, the wobbly legs and who is standing and, and, and getting ready to step and, and take those first steps. And yet, for a parent, and every parent in the room is about to nod their head in agreement, there's nothing more terrifying than the idea of a little one who is learning how to walk because you realize that as soon as they start walking, it's a game changer. They are mobile. And from that point on, everything is different. Now, I realize that most children crawl before they walk. So you've had a little bit of time, but you realize really quickly that once they get past the wobbly, weak in the knees phase, which that they usually get through that pretty quickly, they can walk a whole lot faster than they can crawl. And walking, of course, leads to running, and, and, and it just it goes from there, right? And yet, 
it's important that we, all of us, that we learn to stand, that we learn to use our legs, use our feet, that, that, we, that we stand up. And, you know, sometimes when we're learning how to stand, therefore, in the truth, sometimes when we're learning to stand in, 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 in the strength of the Lord and the strength that he provides surrounded by the armor of God, admittedly, sometimes we feel like the, the little one, the infant, that's just getting its legs, so to speak. The, the little one who's just learning. And, and we feel wobbly and we feel unsure. And, and, and we think that, you know, we may, we may fall at, at any moment. We can all identify with that, I, I suppose. But nonetheless, it's important that we learn to stand firm in the Lord. And that we would stand in the power of his might. We studied that last week. The strength that he provides. And so this armor then is essential, is important for us in, in doing this very thing, in standing, learning to stand. And so the first piece of the armor, the belt of truth, truth itself helps us to stand. That we would, that we would know the truth, that we would live by the truth, that we would entrust our lives to the truth. And yet all of us recognize that we live in a day and a time when the truth seems to be under attack. Am I right? We live in a day and a time when, to be honest, we don't even really know what is true anymore. Because some of that is the source of the truth, right? Where am I getting my truth? Who's the one telling me truth? It seems like some of it is because there's an ideology in our culture that, that talks about, you know, your truth, my truth. I've got to speak my truth. We'll come back, actually, and dig into that idea a little more in a minute. But nonetheless, we live in a day and a time when it seems like the, the truth is under attack, and yet truth is patient, truth is steady, truth is uncompromising, truth is secure. The, the truth doesn't really care whether you like it or not. The truth doesn't really care if you accept it or not. The truth doesn't really care if you agree with it or not. The truth is true because it's true. And so it's important that we would know what the truth is, that we might accomplish this very instruction that we would fasten the belt of truth, as it were, around ourselves, that we, would that we would live in the truth, having fastened the belt of truth. Oftentimes, we think of truth, at least, and I say we, I mean the culture around us, thinks of truth as a feeling, you know, it's something that I have feelings about the truth, it's something that, you know, it, we, we have sort of an emotional and emotive response to the truth. We think about truth sometimes, and, and we think of it along the lines of experience, whatever I've experienced, that's true. We think of truth, sometimes people think of truth as an opinion, right? We see this all the time, that pundits get on TV or the radio, and they just, they, they, they rail about this idea or that idea, and, and they're really just stating opinion, but they're stating it as if it were, as if it were absolute truth. I'm here to tell you the truth is not, the truth is not an emotion, the truth is not experience, the truth is not, it's not an opinion. The truth is something that ultimately is grounded in reality, in, in, in what's, what we might consider to be ultimate reality, the, the world around us. And, and we know that, that this world and everything in it, the cosmos and all of creation was created by a creator God. We sang even about that in our worship this morning. And that same God who created everything that we see and everything that we know and everything that we understand is the source of truth. And so it's important that we understand that as we, as we look to truth, we're really looking to God. 
We're looking to the one who gave us truth, the one who has revealed his truth to us. And so I want us to look at five different points related to truth, five different truths about truth, if you will, uh, to use a little bit of play on words this morning. And so look at me with the, the truth about truth, okay? The first point, you can follow along, by the way, on the back side of your worship guide. There's a place where you can take notes. The first truth about truth is this. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. Now, we tend to think of truth in terms of, in terms of facts and figures and, and, and those things. And, and I don't, hear me, because I'm going to talk more about this as we go, but I don't mean to say that that's utterly wrong. Yes, there are facts, there are. But ultimately, as I've said, truth is really, it is, it is the essence of, of ultimate reality. And there's nothing more ultimate in its reality than Jesus himself, than, than the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 6, you know what he said? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So even Jesus taught his disciples, I am truth. I am ultimate reality. Everything that you see and everything you know and all of creation and every is pointing toward me, Jesus is saying. Now, if Jesus weren't truly God, that would be perhaps uh, the, the, the purest example of some form of uh, megalomania, right? I mean, that would, that would be absolute egotism at its, at, its, at its height. And yet because he is God, because he is good, because he is the author and perfecter of all things, because John tells us in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with him in the beginning. And he goes on to write that, that, that he created all things, that nothing came into existence without him being the one that spoke it into. So because even John in, in his gospel reveals that, because the, the, the Word of God, the truth of God reveals this to us, we can anchor our lives to that truth, we can understand that Jesus is ultimate reality. He is that ultimate truth that we look to. And this world and all that we know to be true in this world ultimately derives its truth, its essence, its being from Jesus. From, from, from Jesus in, in, in the way that he, that he clearly reveals this truth to us as the gospel teaches. Truth is a person. There's a personal nature to truth, but not personal in the way that we often hear it described today. Because often the way that we hear it described today is that it's about my truth, right? My, I've just got to live my truth. I'm just saying my truth. I've just got to share my truth. I've just got to, I've just got to, I've got to, I've got to state my truth. When we say that the truth is a person, and when we, when we think about the fact that truth is personal, we don't mean that truth is relative, it doesn't mean that truth is relative. In fact, this is known in the world of logic. This is known as the, the, uh, the fallacy of subjective relativism. And the, the fallacy of subjective relativism says, essentially, that whatever you believe is true. And so if you believe something and you're sincere, then, then it's true. But the problem with subjective relativism, the problem with that subjective version of truth is that it doesn't stand, right? It, 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 actually, it, it actually 
it eats itself. It, and, and let me explain to you what I mean when I say that, that, it, that it, it folds in on itself. First of all, if truth were just simply a, a function of what people believe, then that would make us infallible. Infallibility, by the way, is the inability to be wrong. If something is infallible, you often hear us talk about the Word of God, and we'll say that the Word of God is inerrant and it's infallible. To say that the Word of God is inerrant means it has no error. There's no error in it. To say that the Word of God is infallible means that it's in, incapable of being wrong in that it is given to us by holy God. It is the revelation of God, and because God himself has revealed the Word to us, it cannot contain error because God, there's no, there's no error in God. Now, people argue against this. There's, there's entire streams of academia that, that point out. And, and so it's important that we understand when we talk about the infallibility of Scripture that we're talking about, we're talking about, first of all, in its original autographs. And we also have to consider it in the context in which it was given. When I say the original autographs, what I mean is the original writings themselves, which we don't actually have. And there are some who would say, well, that's a real problem with the Bible. How can we trust it? Because we don't have, for instance, we're studying here from the book of Ephesians. We don't have the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the original one, right? We don't have it. It doesn't exist to our knowledge. And so some people would say, well, that's a real problem with the Bible. How can I trust the Bible when we don't have the original documents? But you realize we don't have the original documents of all kinds of, of uh literature from antiquity we don't have the original documents when it comes to any number of uh take take the works of homer for example the the greek writer homer whose homer whose whose famous works the iliad and the odyssey are so well known did you know that in in total there are around a hundred copies of uh ancient copies of of homer's original works by comparison, when you compare that against the scripture, there are, there are actually closer to 20,000 uh, copies of the scripture that, that date from around the time of the original writings or, or just a few years after the, uh, with, within about 100 to 200 years after the original writings, there, are, there aren't nearly 20,000 within the first 200 years, but within the first four, five, 600 years, there are, there are thousands upon thousands of of, of copies and fragments, and, and, and that may not sound like much to you, but in the world of ancient literature, that is a landslide of evidence. That is a slam dunk case. And what's more, when you study those copies, and you study those fragments, and you study those original, uh, th those original writings, which, again, there, there are entire streams of scholarship, both Christian and non-Christian, which do that, which are devoted to that. And what they find is remarkable reliability and consistency among those ancient writings. I'm here to tell you, you can trust the word of God as reliable and true. But what's more, you can trust that the word of God is true because the one who gave it to you is true. Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the one who says to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth. He is truth. He is, he is the, the embodiment of, the personification of ultimate truth. The truth is personal. Again, let me finish this. I was telling you about the fallacy of subjective relativism. So it's, it's first of all, it, it doesn't work because if, if it were to be true, then it means that we are infallible, that we are incapable of being wrong. And I'm here to tell you, you are quite capable of being wrong, right? And I am too. We know that doesn't work. That, that It doesn't take much 
work to convince us that we can be wrong because we are wrong all the time. But the, the second and, and, and perhaps even the more important reason that subjective relativism doesn't work is because in order for subjective relativism to be true, then the logic itself would have to work differently. Because see, here's how the logic would work. That in order for subjective relativism to be true, then it would, the saying would go that, well, there is no such thing as an absolute truth. But the problem is that that statement itself is an absolute claim to truth, right? To say that there is no absolute truth, that my answer would be, well, are you absolutely certain of that? Because that's an absolute statement of truth. It, it, you see what I'm saying? It folds in on itself. It just doesn't work. And so there have to be absolutes. There has to be absolute truth. Now, having said that, I know what people mean when they say my truth. They're talking about their experience. They're talking about, they're talking about the way that they have experienced things. And, and, and I think that we ought to be sensitive and give an ear to that. But let's not, let's not confuse what truth is in the midst of trying to be listened to be to listen I should say rather and be sensitive to the hurts and the struggles that people have been through in order that we might share with them the only ultimate comfort the only ultimate salve the only ultimate healing which is the truth of the gospel the only thing ultimately that can heal all of the pain and the hardship and, and the oppression and the suffering and the wrong that we've been through is the truth of the gospel and so we want to be sensitive to where people are coming from and yet at the same time we have to understand that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And that Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth. So to know truth, hear me on this, is to know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know the truth. But not only does the gospel of John tell us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but also John gives us these words of, uh, of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 32. This is powerful. That Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the second truth about truth is that the truth sets us free. The truth sets us free. There is great freedom in knowing the truth and living in the truth. There is great freedom when the light of truth shines on something and exposes the darkness and spo exposes the shadows and reveals, and reveals the truth. Sometimes that's scary. Sometimes that's frightening. Sometimes it's downright, it's downright ugly. And yet, the truth always sets us free. When, we, when, when the truth is, is, is shines, it's like light in the darkness. Last week, I shared with you uh, a quote from uh, a scholar whose name is Ian Duguid, Dr. Ian Duguid. And, uh, and, and if you listen to our podcast, I'll make a, a, a shameless plug here for our podcast because we're recording all through the summer a weekly podcast related to this armor of God. You can find it on our website under the ministries tab or you can just search for FBC Chickasha wherever you listen to podcasts and, and it ought to be there. And last weekend in our podcast, we, I, I read to you a quote from the book, The Armor of God, uh, that uh, Dr. Duguid there's another quote that I wanted to share this morning because this really stood out to me in, when I read the book. He said that the devil hates truth and will do anything he can to distract you from it. Isn't that so real? I mean, 
I can identify with that on every level. The devil hates truth, and he will do everything he can to distract you from it. And yet, when we embrace the truth, the truth has power to set us free. And so, as we know Jesus and we know truth, as we, as we live in that truth, connected to that truth, as we pursue truth by pursuing Christ, that truth that we discover, the truth that we encounter, has the power to set us free. To set us free from our bondage to sin and, and, and the enslavement that we have to all of the wrong and the shame and the hurt and the things that we've done. The, the power to set us free from the fact that, that we try over and over and we struggle and we struggle and we always come up short. The truth has the power to set us free, to transform us, to change us. Third truth about truth is that the truth prepares us for action. The truth prepares us for action. Now understanding the, the, the picture that Paul writes about here helps to, to make this, this uh, a little more clear for us. So Paul says specifically here that we are to stand firm, therefore, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now what we picture in our minds when we think of the belt of truth is we think of a belt much like the, the belt that I have around my waist now. Or if you're picturing a Roman centurion, you picture the, uh, the, the belt that perhaps that his sword would have hung to from his, his waist. But this is the first piece of armor. And so if you're thinking about the armor and kind of building from the bottom up, so to speak, or, or at least from the way that, it, that a soldier would get dressed, you're building from that, that innermost layer outward, the closest layer that the, that the, uh, the soldier would wear to his undergarments was a, a leather, oftentimes it was a leather waistband, a leather waistband that he would wear. And in this day and time, a soldier would wear a skirt of sorts. And when he was getting ready for battle, he would take the skirt and he would fold his skirt into the, his waistband. And there's, there's a phrase that gets used, and you'll see this in some of the older translations, the older English translations. We'll talk about girding up your loins. The, the way that this literally reads in the Greek language is it, where we would translate it, or the, the, I should say the committee, the ESV committee have translated this, having fastened on the belt of truth. It literally reads, having girded up your loins with the truth. That's what it literally means. And the, the picture there is of taking the skirt and, and folding that skirt into the waistband. And the reason that the soldier would do that is because that way he would be unencumbered in his movement. He could run, he could engage uh, with the enemy. The enemy couldn't step on his, on his skirt, it couldn't be used. And, and so it, would, it, it left him unencumbered and able to, 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 to battle, to face off, to, to face the enemy. And so the, that's the picture there. The, the truth prepares us for action. So one of the first things do, soldiers would do as they were getting dressed and as they were getting ready, perhaps even before, if they knew they were going into battle, before they would put on the rest of their armor, they would, they would tuck their, their, their clothes into their waistband, so to speak. They would gird up their loins is, the, is maybe the, the, the literal translation of, again, to prepare themselves for action. And the truth does that for us. The truth prepares us for action. 
You want to be prepared to stand against the onslaught of the enemy, all the lies that the enemy is going to bring against you, all the attacks, all the guilt, all the shame, all the things that the enemy is going to throw at you, then you need to know the truth. Because the enemy wants to, wants to, to cast lies at you and cast dispersions at you. The enemy wants to, to distract you with his lies. Oh, you're not enough. No, the Lord couldn't, the Lord won't forgive that. The Lord won't use that. I oh, know this is, oh, you better not let anyone know about this. Oh, you, you should, you should, right? He, he wants us to keep things hidden and secret and, and quiet. The, the enemy wants us to think that we're never enough and we're not enough. And, and this is, you know, the Lord might forgive a lot of things, but this is one that just, and all those lies that he throws at us. I'm here to tell you that it's, it's just that. It's lies from the enemy. There is power in bringing those things into the light and living in light of the truth. And that when we do that, not only are we set free, as we saw already, that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, but now we are ready to stand and to fight. Now we are armed with the truth and we're ready to take on the enemy. In the Septuagint, which the, the Greek Septuagint is... Essentially, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the, in the period of time that we think of as the intertestamental period. So the period essentially between the end of the writings of the Old Testament and the time of Jesus. There was a window of several hundred years. And in that period of time, the Greeks translated the Hebrew scripture into their language, into the Greek language. And that translation is known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint literally means the 70, because there was a council of about 70 that translated the, the scripture from Hebrew into Greek. The Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, says this. So look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5 with me. I think we even have it to show it to you on the screen. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Now, this is speaking, by the way, of the servant of the Lord. This is speaking of Jesus, a prophecy of the servant of the Lord, the one who would come. We, of course, know that this is Jesus. They would have known it as the Messiah. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, the belt of his waist, that's the outer belt, and then the belt of the loins, that's the inner belt. And, and although it says here in, in this translation, faithfulness, the belt of his loins, you see the little footnote there if you're reading from your ESV, and it tells you that the meaning of this in Hebrew is uncertain. Well, the, the Greeks, when they translated that from Hebrew to English, they actually translated that word to be truth. Truth shall be the belt of his loins. So what did the prophet Isaiah prophesy about the coming Christ hundreds of years before his time? He prophesied that truth would be the belt of his loins. Truth would be the thing that prepares him for action. And what does Paul say to the Ephesians, writing, again, hundreds of years removed? Truth prepares us for action. So truth is a person. Truth sets us free. Truth prepares us for action. Truth transforms our hearts. Truth transforms our hearts. Ultimately, it's the truth that has the power to change us. Why is it 
that so many of us have struggled for so long to try to be better, to try to do more, to the struggle that we find ourselves engaged in, it seems like constantly, unendingly, I'm just never enough. I just always come up short. It's just never enough. It's because you're trying to live in your own strength. You're trying to stand in your own power. But what did we see last week? Stand in the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. Stand in the power that He supplies. Nowhere is that more visible and evident to us than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He conquered sin and death. He proved once and for all that he is the way, he is the truth, he is life. And that we can come to the Father through faith in him. And because of that, we can look to him, we can trust in him. And when we do by faith, we will be transformed from the inside out. Paul writes elsewhere to the church in, churches in Galatia. He writes that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, I said Galatians, I meant Corinthians. I, the church in Corinth. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, by the way. And, and he, he says that the old is gone and the new has come. We are transformed. We are made new. Jesus himself says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that unless one is born of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. You have to have new life. You have to have transformation. How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you this, spoiler alert, it's not by just doing a better job. It's not by just trying harder. Ultimately, it's by surrendering to Jesus, by having faith in him. And when we surrender to him, when we trust in him by faith, then we discover that he transforms us. Again, we saw this last week as in, in two ways. It happens in two ways. It happens outside of us through the once-for-all finished work of Christ, and it happens inside of us through the ongoing, continual, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God is at work in our lives to transform us, to make us new. It transforms not just our actions, not just our behavior, but it transforms our heart. Now that's real power. Because Pavlov learned a long time ago that you can condition, you can condition behavior any way that you want, right? With a system of rewards, you can condition behavior, but that won't condition the heart. The only way to transform the heart is through the transformative power of the gospel. The only way to change your desires, the only way to be made new from the inside out is through faith in Jesus. As we trust in him, as we surrender our lives to him, as we embrace his truth by faith, which is, again, to embrace Jesus, then now we can be transformed from the inside out, from the, from the heart. And finally, we see this. The truth empowers us to stand. The truth empowers us to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You want to stand in the, in the power of the Lord and the strength of his might? Then you need to stand on the truth. And that just makes sense when you think about it. Because if we were to stand on a lie, then who knows what may happen and what may come along to just sweep that rug out from underneath us, right? But when our lives are built on the truth, when we stand on the truth, we are standing on a firm foundation, on the solid bedrock, the foundation of God's truth. Jesus himself, the New Testament tells us, being the chief cornerstone. When we stand on that foundation of truth, we can stand firm 
we can stand and take on the enemy and take on anything that he throws at us and anything that comes against us and all of his schemes and all of his lies and all of his, all of his ways that he would manipulate us and all his ways that he would deceive us. We can stand against the enemy because we stand in the truth by standing firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, you can know the truth because you can know Jesus by faith. And if there's never been a moment when you've trusted Jesus by faith, then in, a, in, in just a few moments, we're going to have a time of response, a time of invitation. And my sincere desire, my sincere prayer for you this week as I've studied and gotten ready for this, is that there would be some who would hear this message this morning and you would come to the place where you realize you've never trusted in Jesus for, for your salvation and that today might be the day that you would surrender your heart and your life to him. Today might be the day that you would call on the name of the Lord and that you would be saved. That you would give your heart and your life. You would say, Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner, but I know that I can be forgiven and set free by placing my faith and my trust in you. So I do that. And today I confess you as Lord and Savior of my life. I want to give all I am to you. Come in my heart and save me. And if you're willing to pray a prayer like that and trust him as your Lord and Savior, you can be forgiven, you can be set free, and you can live in the truth and be transformed by his truth. But not only that, not only can you be forgiven, not only can you find salvation in trusting in Christ and living in his truth, but you can be prepared for all that the enemy is going to throw at you by standing firm in the truth. I'm not talking about your truth or my truth or somebody else's truth. I'm talking about the truth as it's revealed to us by God in the authoritative word. And, and as we understand it, just through just through perceiving the ultimate reality that we see in the world around us, such that we might know Jesus and we might live in light of his truth. The truth prepares us for action. It transforms our hearts. And ultimately, it empowers us to stand. And that's really the point, isn't it? That we would stand, therefore, in the truth. Perhaps this morning God has been speaking to you and he's been stirring your heart. And, and you want to stand, but you would be, you'd be honest enough to acknowledge it's hard. Maybe it's hard because there are some things that have been hidden in the darkness, in the shadows that need to be brought into light. Maybe there are some secrets that need to be made truth. Now, I'm not, hear me. I'm not saying we're going to have testimony time and open mic in a moment, and we're just going to have everybody come stand here and, and tell, uh, tell the world their, their deepest, darkest secret. That's not what I mean when I say living in the truth. But are you... First of all, are you willing to acknowledge it, to confess it before the Lord? And as appropriate, are you willing to acknowledge and confess that to, to trusted people around you in order that you might find the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus and the support that he has given to you through his body? Maybe today you need to, you need to acknowledge some things before the Lord in order that you can stand in the light of his truth, maybe for some today. Maybe it's not about confessing a past sin and, and, and that sort of, maybe, but maybe for you it's just in, maybe it's just in realizing that the answer to all of this isn't to just work harder and try harder to, to, to be more honest and to be a better person, but rather it's in living in the freedom that is yours in Christ being surrendered to him, yielded to him. Not that you have to try harder, but that rather if you would just be more yielded, more surrendered, the spirit would work in you and empower you to stand. 
however God is speaking to you, whatever way he's stirring in your heart, I hope that you would be willing to take those bold steps of faith today in order to respond to him. And in in a moment, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And after I do, we're going to sing a song. We're going to stand together and sing a song that we like to refer to as the song of invitation. And the reason we call it a song of invitation is because it's in that moment that we're inviting you to respond to this truth. Maybe it's to surrender your life to Christ. Maybe it's to to have a moment of real confession before the Lord that you get right with him. Or maybe, perhaps, it's just to realize that, that you need to be yielded to Christ, not a better version of yourself, in order that you might stand in his truth. Whatever way God is speaking to you, we want to give you the freedom to respond and, and move in this moment as we sing this song. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me now as we just prepare for this moment? I'm going to lead us in a prayer and, and really, this is a prayer where we invite God to speak. And, and really what we say is, Lord, I, I want to be fully yielded and surrendered. We invite him to, to continue moving and stirring in our hearts. And, and then when that's done, we're going to stand and sing that song. And as we do, I'll be here at the front. If you'd like to, uh, to surrender your life to Christ today, or maybe perhaps if I can encourage you in some other way, I invite you to come as we stand and sing. Lord, we are so grateful that we can know the truth because we can know you, Jesus, and that your truth has the power to set us free. Help us live now in the freedom, in the light of that truth in order that we might be transformed, that we might be prepared for action in order that we might stand firm in your strength, in the power of your might. We ask this in your name. We stand together now to sing this song of invitation again. Our altar is open. I'll be here at the front ready to pray with you. And I would encourage you, if God's moving, if he's speaking to you today, that you would respond in faith to him as we sing. Peace.